Good morning, church. Well, isn't it nice to be in a room full of people? And it's so exciting. Now, no one sat on this section or in the front row. Nobody's on the front row. We were going to give a new, a new Ford Bronco away today to someone who sat in that section right there, but... Just too late. <laughs> so glad to see you. And if you're joining us online today, we're so glad you're here. We're just thrilled that you've joined us. We're having fun, aren't we, with the story? Isn't it great? So much feedback. Someone just mentioned to me between services how meaningful this has been to them to just have the Bible unpacked, you know, in chewable bites and in a way that's understandable. And so I know that you're excited about that as well. Let me just uh, say an amen to this introduction to a program we're calling Disciple. This, uh, this material was introduced to us uh, just a few months ago, and we've gotten to know the author, Eric Fish, and this is the best thing I've ever seen to help lay a foundation of faith in a person's life. 12 weeks, it's very simple. It's an outline form, lots of conversation starters, it's just very thoughtful and very well done. And so we're going to begin this class, as Pastor Glenn had mentioned, on the 13th at 10 o'clock this hour. So you can come at 8.30 for worship, stay for class, or come to class, stay for the 11.30 service. We want to make it convenient for everyone. As he mentioned, Jay Harvey and Robin Wood are going to be teaching this. Jay and Robin are on our team here at Union Chapel. They have decades of Christian leadership experience. This is going to be a life-changing opportunity. So I hope that uh, you'll grab one of these books. You can get one at the Welcome Center. They're $5. The reason we got them for five bucks is because we know the author now and we're friends with him. And it's, it's just, I just think it's just great. It's the best stuff I've ever seen. So if you are a new believer or a seasoned follower of Jesus, this will either help you lay a good foundation for your faith or reestablish that foundation. It should be very meaningful. So I hope you'll check it out. Today we are on uh, chapter 5 of the story. We pick up Moses, of course, with the 2 million or so Israelites in the Sinai Desert, and we'll see how God institutes some important aspects of life together as a new nation uh, through the story, chapter 5. Let me begin with this uh, idea. There was a, uh, a burglar who broke into a home. He knew no one was there, and so he's going through the place with a flashlight, and suddenly hears a voice. And the voice says, Jesus is watching you, and he wonders if he actually heard someone because he knew no one was in the house, and so he keeps working his way through, and then again, the voice, Jesus is watching you, and he believes he knows the general direction of the voice, so he lifts his flashlight, and he sees a birdcage over in a corner, and there's a parrot in there. He walks over there, and he says, was that you? The parrot said, yes. Robert says, what, what's your name? And the bird says, Moses. <laughs> Burglar says, what kind of a family would name their parrot Moses? The parrot says, same one that would name their pit bull Jesus. <laughs> we pick up the story with Moses now. That's the connection. <laughs> Having led the people out of Egypt... And now they find themselves in the desert of Sinai. Remember, Abraham had promised 
God had promised, rather, Abraham that he would make of him and his descendants a great nation and that the entire world would be blessed through him. So we've followed Abraham and Sarah, Abraham, then the son of promise, Isaac, and then Jacob, who had these 12 sons uh, for whom all the 12 tribes of Israel will eventually become named. And Jacob has a son named Joseph, and Joseph ends up in the economy of God's plan for his life in Egypt, and he preserves this nation. And then many, many years later, hundreds of years later, God raises up Moses to deliver this nation. And so they've now miraculously been extricated out of Egyptian bondage. They've crossed the Red Sea. They're into the desert of Sinai, and we pick up the story. Uh, There's a writer named A.J. Jacobs who grew up in New York City. He was in a Jewish family, but he relates that the most Jewish thing they ever did was hang a Jewish uh, star, the Star of David, on top of their Christmas tree every year. So not particularly orthodox in their faith. And he couldn't understand why religion was still happening. In particular, he couldn't understand the Bible and why it still has so much influence in the world. So he purchased a Bible and he decided to underline, highlight, all of the commands in the Bible, which he did. And then he set a goal to live biblically by obeying all the commands that he found in the Bible. So he wrote a book and chronicled his experiences in that book entitled The Year Living Biblically. Fascinating concept, isn't it? And he made no effort to apply any context to any of these commands. He made no distinction between the moral law or the civil law, or the ceremonial law. These are the three parts of the Mosaic law, which, which were instituted under Moses' leadership. It was simply a straightforward read it and do it exercise. So at the beginning of the year, he started letting his facial hair grow. He grew a beard, and he started carrying around pebbles in his pockets in case he ran into anyone in New York City who had broken the Sabbath or committing adultery, and he would take these pebbles and start pelting people with them. You know, he's stoning people for their offense. He was obsessed with food laws. One of them in particular is that you're not supposed to eat the fruit of a tree that isn't at least five years old. And so he was all worked up about that. And then what to wear, his, what, he, what he put on during the day. Now you may think A.J. Jacobs is a kook, but actually the book is really funny. I have not read the book, but those who have report that it's very entertaining. I mean, reading this account will make you laugh out loud. What is sad about this account from A.J. Jacobs is he spent a year looking at the laws of God and never discovered the God who presented these loving instructions to his people. Four things today that we see instituted by God through Moses in the desert of Sinai. Now, remember the context here is you have two million people loosely connected by these 12 tribes They all have this common experience as indentured slaves in Egypt, 430 years of that, and now they're they're out, and they're wandering. They're They're in this desert. They have no land. They have no place to call their own. They're just people, and God now meets them to try to establish a nation, guidelines, boundaries, expectations for their life together. And the first thing that God institute is these guidelines, are these guidelines for life. Now, this is a great challenge for all of us to follow because in this section of the history of Israel, 
there are hundreds of these laws that, that come down through Moses, over 650 different laws that have moral implications, civil, you know, how to, how to settle legal disputes, ceremonial, how do you do your religious life and that sort of thing. And you may be hearing me today and you think of the Bible as a bunch of outdated rules. This is very common commentary that we hear in a postmodern, post-Christian culture in which we live. The Bible's an outdated book. It can't be trusted. It's nothing but a bunch of requirements and restrictions which prohibit and suppress. There's a lot of thou shalt nots in there. And anytime anything that's of a passionate nature occurs in your life and you ask God about it, the answer is no. And so people have this idea. And you conclude, if that's your worldview, that's your concept of the Bible, that you want nothing to do with God. And if that is your conclusion, then I'm with you. Because I don't care much for rules and regulations myself. I'm one of those guys who doesn't respond well to being told what he can and cannot do. I don't know how you are. I think this is the reason I never really felt entirely comfortable in school. But I say me neither, if that's what it's about. But it's interesting to note then that, that from the original Hebrew language, the word for law does not mean prohibit, pro, prohibition. Rather, it means instruction. And I might just add the word, the qualifier, loving instruction, loving authority, loving guidelines. So the question today is, how do you approach the word of God? How do you approach these laws, these guidelines? What kind of attitude do you have? How about, oh God, would you instruct me in ways to make my marriage better? Oh God, would you instruct me in my parenting? Would you help me in the use of my money or the use of my time or how to manage this difficult relationship with a coworker, this setback in my life? What am I to do? I need your loving instruction. If you approach the word of God with that kind of attitude, that mindset, Good things can happen for you. So the question is, do you see the word of God, the law of God as restrictive, or do you see it as liberating? One of the things that you are not aware of about my life is one of my hobbies is I love to fly kites. That may surprise some of you. I have a whole closet full of kites, and when I say I have a closet full, you can ask my wife, it's one of those deals where she she will say, what, you've bought another kite? Because I have diamond kites, box kites, delta kites, rokoku kites, single line, double line kites, wing-shaped kites, inflatable kites. I have learned over the years flying kites that a kite requires two primary things in order for it to fulfill its potential as a kite. Those two things are pretty straightforward and you will realize them to be true. One is that you need wind. And not only does a kite require wind, but it also requires being tethered to something or someone. Kites lose all of their potential. They lose all their beauty. They lose all of their purpose when they become untethered. How many of you have had a, had a kite string break on you? It's the worst moment of the day right there. Oh, there goes my kite. Kites are, kites are just not impressive when they're untethered. So here's God's vision. This all, goes all the way back to Genesis 1. God's vision for the world is that he wants to be in loving community with people. 
We're the apple of his eye. We're the highest level of the created order. We're made in the image and likeness of God. And he wants to be in intimate relationship with us. And so all of the biblical narrative, the whole story are these five movements that he went from the Garden of Eden where he tried to establish this loving community with the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. And when they rejected God's vision, there were consequences. And as a result of that, God has been on a mission to restore that loving community, first through the nation of Israel, then through the life of Jesus, then through the life of the church, the followers of Jesus in the world, and ultimately back to paradise, a place called heaven. And God is going to fulfill his vision for his relationship with human beings in that intimate loving fellowship and he's going to restore it he begins with this guy named abraham this father of a great multitude who will bless through whom will bless the nations abraham isaac then jacob then joseph and now moses we pick up the story exodus chapter 19 verse 1 look on the screen on the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. And after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai. And Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Do you hear treasured possession? Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The People all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. God is reminding them through Moses that he set them apart. That phrase is there. Refers to them as a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are phrases God uses about the Israelites. The metaphor God uses most is that of a bridegroom and a bride. We see this all the way through the story, all the way through the narrative of the scripture. God is the bridegroom. We are the bride. That's familiar New Testament language for those of us who've considered the New Testament as well. And so God reminds the people, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I have brought you unto myself. You are my treasured possession. God's request is that they respond to him on obedience and faithfulness, and they agree to do so. And if they will do that, God will make of them a holy nation, a royal priesthood that will become a model community for all of the rest of the world to see. This is the model that Almighty God has established for people in the world. And if you follow this model, then you can also receive the loving invitation to become part of God's family. God wants to bless the whole world. Now, this is 1,400 years before Jesus. So you can calculate it from our day, and it's about 3,400 years ago. It's important to note, 3,400 years ago in this part of the world, uh, the world was rough. It was raw. It was uh, a bunch of city-states and tribal peoples, uh, barbaric, uh, worshiping all kinds of gods in the, in the pagan, pagan world, barbaric practices. Women were treated as property. Conquered tribes were indentured and enslaved. Infanticide was common. Many of the gods that were worshiped in these days in this region of the world required the sacrifice of, of children Oftentimes, 
little babies would be thrown into the fire as a sacrifice to these false gods. People are completely out of touch and unaware of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a new nation now that God is establishing so that people will get a view, a model, a picture, if you will, of who he is and the wonderful design he has for humanity. And God reminds the Israelites, you are now my bride and you will be my model to all the people of the world. And in this context, it's in this context, the establishment of a new order with loving instruction, helpful guidelines that God gives the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. There are Ten Commandments four of which, the first four, are related to our relationship to God and the last six, our relationship with one another. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, God says, I'm first, I'm foremost. I don't, I won't, I shouldn't be second. I'm first place, no other gods. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. In other words, don't reduce God to something small, something little, a lesser thing. An idol is essentially a person, a thing, or an idea that usurps the place of God in your life. No idols. You shall not make for yourself any kind of image. Now remember the context of this. Everybody in the world was making idols of every kind of image. And God says, no more of that, no more idols. Here's the third, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses my name. Oh my God. This is common vernacular, isn't it? People say it all the time. Oh, and in fact, we've abbreviated it. OMG, oh my God. Or people throw the name of Jesus around. Sometimes just casually, you know, Jesus. Or sometimes there's an emphasis in cursing, you know, with energy. You know, to define the point, we use the name Jesus. And people who do these things may respond by saying, look, I didn't mean anything by it. And I say, oh, my God, I, I didn't, no offense intended. Okay, but when you say I didn't mean anything by it, that is the point. That is the point. You don't use the name of God casually. You don't use the name of God as if, as if it's common. It's, it, it's under the category of misusing the name because there's nothing common about God and there's nothing common about the ways of God and there's nothing common about our relationship with God. So we shouldn't use language. That implies common. So you shall not misuse the name of the Lord. And then number four is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. God basically says, I'm the ruler of all your days. And here's the mandate. For six days, you are to work. You do your stuff. You live your life. And on the seventh day, you stop and you rest and you reflect. All of us with any kind of ability for critical thinking know that life will knock you out of focus. And it happens to all of us all the time. It'll, not, it'll knock your focus. And God says every seventh day, 
one out of seven, you stop and you Sabbath and you rest and you reflect, you remember, you renew, you reestablish your priorities in life. You refocus on me. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. I've preached a whole series of sermons on the Sabbath. You should go back and listen to them if you struggle with this. And most of us do. Virtually all of us struggle with Sabbath. It's hard for us in today's modern culture. So these four in our relationship with God, then the next six in our relationship with each other, number five, honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. So apparently this is, this is the one command with a promise. If you live honorably with your parents, God's blessing of long life will be realized. Interesting, isn't it? Number six, you shall not murder. You say, well, yeah, we shouldn't do that. Everybody knows that. Nobody knew it the first time it came down because everybody was murderous. Heck, we'll even murder our own babies to satisfy some pagan god. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. What do you mean I can't sleep with anybody I want anytime I want? Well, back in the day, there was no covenant marriage. There's no rules like that, no boundaries, loving authority like that. So no, the answer is don't commit adultery. You shall not steal. What do you mean you can't steal? Of course you can steal. The idea is not to get caught. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor so you don't lie. And number 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey, his John Deere tractor, his weed whacker, his Porsche, none of that stuff that belongs to your neighbor. And let me just say how exciting it is that God has instructed us how to live. This seems to me to be the kind of instruction, the initiation of a, of a code, of a moral parameter of a value system that would indicate that God actually wants the very best for us to be realized, not to dampen us or to restrict us or to be a wet blanket on our passions, but to enable us to be fully ourselves and freely human in the context of God's loving instruction. Thank God for this. This is a God who wants the best. We are made in his image and likeness. So when he says, you shall have no other gods, he's saying, look, no, no other lovers, Your first love is me. And this is not only what's right, this is what's best for you, to love God with all of your heart. So our God doesn't murder, he doesn't commit adultery, he doesn't steal, he doesn't lie, he doesn't covet, and neither should we. This is the God who loves us. And if we get confused about, and I can't remember all those 10 commandments and and the 650 laws on top of that, I can't remember all of that. So Jesus helped us when he summarized the whole thing. It's found in Mark's gospel chapter 12. I'll put this on the screen. Jesus said, the whole law that God gave Moses can be summed up in these two. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your, your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There, there is no commandment greater than these. Love God, love your neighbor. Any questions? And so we understand the loving instruction, the guidelines for life. So if you're in a workplace where there's betrayal and lying and stealing and profanity, or you're on a sports team, you know, you're in the locker room where all of those things are happening, 
Or you're in a family like that, where there's all kinds of pain and dysfunction. Listen, here's my, here's my challenge. Don't conform to that. Don't conform. Learn the love language of the people of your, at your work or on your team or in your family and practice loving them for Jesus' sake. Be different. Stand out. Be unique. Be a city set on a hill. Be the light of the world. That's what God calls us to. Be the model that the rest of the world can see knowing this God really matters and following his loving guidelines really helps. I became a Christian when I was 16 years old. Neither of my parents were followers of Jesus at the time. And of course, that became a burden to me. People most precious to me didn't know Jesus. And I'd found Jesus and I realized knowing Jesus really matters. It's everything. And so one day I began to pray, Lord, how can I influence my parents? For Jesus' sake. My mother was a firstborn Type A, perfectionistic personality. I am her firstborn. Uh, So when I see therapists, that's the first question they should ask me. Tell me about your mother. Start from there. My mother and I banged banged heads, therefore, when I was growing up. And one of her deals was she liked to keep a nice house. I mean, she was very fastidious about house cleaning. She wanted everything perfect. And she was constantly on me. I know none of you guys ever heard this from your mother. Please clean up your room. She was constantly badgering me about my room. And being a hard-headed personality like she is, we just banged heads. And the more she insisted I clean my room, the more I resisted. And this worked fine, especially when I got to be physically bigger than her. Then it was, you wait till your father gets home. Many of you have lived through that kind of sequence. It happens. One day I was praying for my mother. I was 16 years old. I had known Jesus for a few months and I was wondering how could I influence my mother for Jesus' sake. And I thought, what would say to her that Jesus is real in the life of her son? I thought, clean up my room. And then I, re- I rationalized the whole thing because I didn't want to go crazy. And I thought, how long does it take to tidy up your room? I mean, s- spread out your bed after you sleep in it, pick up the stuff that's laying around, put it where it belongs because everything has a place. So just pick it up, put it in the drawer, pick it up, put it in the closet, pick it up. How long is that going to take every day? What, 45 seconds? Maybe to keep my room tidy. So I did it. I cleaned up my room. And the next day I cleaned up my room. And the day after that I cleaned up my room. And my mother never said anything. I just kept my room clean. And three years later I came home from college one day and I walked by my parents' bedroom, my mother was in the bedroom. She, she asked me to come in, and I, I walked in there, and she, she was holding a Bible, and I said, what's going on? She said, I've been reading the Bible today and praying all day, and she said, I want you to know I've come to faith in Jesus. I invited Jesus Christ to come into my life and be my Savior today. 
I've become a Christian today. And then she said, one of the reasons I've taken Christianity seriously is when I went into your room a few years ago and it was clean. And he said, she said, I knew that what you said about Jesus changing your life was true. She said, I knew if you would clean up your room, that's a sign that God is real to him. That sounds simple. Sound wild. So what is it with you? Is it as simple as cleaning up your room? Learn the love language of people you're trying to reach. Is your teammate, is your classmate, is your is your is your parent, is your teacher, is your friend, is your is your work associate? What is their love language? Learn their love language and start loving them for Jesus' sake. Jesus said you can you can fulfill all the commands with these two things. Love God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Just love people in ways that indicate to them that there's something unique about you. And indeed there is. You know the Lord of the universe. You know Jesus Christ. He is, he is the founder of all of life. And you have invited him and his presence and power into your life. And it makes a difference. And it should outshine to the people around you. Amen. So thank God for his law. Thank God for his loving guidance, his loving instruction. Well, so God gave guidelines. Now, the second thing that as God's established in this nation, and I have to go faster now. You see how much, what time it is? Watch how fast I have to go. Here's the second thing. There's a place to dwell. So then Exodus 25, 8 and 9, have them make a sanctuary for me and I will Dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So God gives Moses very specific instructions on the building of a tent called a tabernacle. It's a Hebrew means, meaning dwelling. Now, these are nomadic people now. They're living in a desert. And so they're all living in tents. And so God asks for a place for him to dwell, a place to meet with God, a place to bring your sacrifices and your offerings to God. And so the intricate details of all the furniture and every fabric that was chosen, all of these furnishings were a picture of what was to come in Jesus Christ 1,400 years later. All of it very, very uh, symbolic in its nature. So there's, there's this outer courtyard fenced in, and in that courtyard there is the brazen altar and the laver. This is the place where you would bring your animal sacrifice and the, and the priest would would perform that part of the, of the sacrifice. And then inside the tent itself, there were two rooms. One was the holy place, the, the larger outer room. It wasn't very big. It was maybe 10 feet by 20 feet. And in that particular room, there was the altar of incense and this candle stand called the menorah, the table of showbread. All of these, these items, these furnishings, these places where the priests practiced the, the ceremonial law and their religious practices, all of them had symbolic meaning back to Jesus. And it's very intricate and it's very proper, very precise. And so this took place in this 
larger outer room. And then there was a secondary inner room, which was only about 10 feet square. And this was called the Holy of Holies. So you have the holy place and the most holy place. And in that little room was, a, was, was, was where the ark resided. The ark was this wooden box made of acacia wood that God ordered Moses to build in the wilderness. You've seen the movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, that ark, that thing, that box. It's about four feet long and about two and a half feet wide. It's not very big. On the lid on this thing, there are two angels with their wings facing forward, and the angels are bowed down like this and described as the mercy seat. This is where God would dwell. Inside of this box, the the tablets where Moses carried down off of Sinai with the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God, it's there. The only time anyone went into the Holy of Holies was once a year. The high priest went in there to make a sacrifice for sins. It was very dramatic. This was where the presence of God would dwell. The holy place and the most holy place, these two rooms in the tabernacle tent was divided. They were divided by a very thick veil, a curtain, the thick as a man's wrist. And it was very thick and indicated you don't go through there just once a year. It's a very potent thing. So all, all, of, all of these designs, intricate, and I'm sure beautiful, spectacular, with the colors and the, and the special metals, all of it by, by God's design. And there's a phrase that continues to occur in the context of this place of worship for the whole nation, all of the 12 tribes to come to this central place for their worship activities and the ceremonial activities there was a phrase that reoccurs over and over through, the, through, through these books of the Old Testament. And it says, and the Lord says, and don't come to the tent of meeting. Don't come to the place of worship empty-handed. Don't come empty-handed. Always bring something. Always bring something to honor God. Always bring something. That's a good word for us, isn't it? This is, how, this is another aspect of your spiritual life. Don't, don't come empty-handed. You know, there are, there, there are folks who are new to the church and just trying to get used to the whole culture and all of that. And certainly we're so glad. And that's all, that's all good. But this is just a good principle to remember that when you serve God, you don't come empty-handed. You come with, you come with intentions to serve. You come with intentions to con- connect in community, relate to other people. You, you come with resources that are honorable to God. That's how it works. So a place for God to dwell. Then the third thing is that this whole culture established around the issue of the atonement for sin. God wanted to ingrain in his people that someone, that, that someone has to atone for the thing that separates people from this loving community in God's vision. He wants us to be in close fellowship with one another, and the thing that divides us, the thing that keeps you from intimacy with God is the same thing that kept them from intimacy, and it's your rebellion. It's our sin, our failures, and our faults that separates us from God. And so sin has to be atoned for. And in this holy of holies, once a year, I mentioned the high priest, but there was ongoing, ongoing sacrifice for sin. Now, why... why the need for repeated sacrifice of animals to atone for sin. We find the answer to that in Hebrews, the New Testament chapter 10. Look on the screen. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, 
not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So while it was a, an opportunity for people to express their faith and their repentance for their sins before God, it was never going to be a sufficient sacrifice for sins, no matter how spotless the animal might be. And of course, you're making the connection down to Jesus, who once and for all made sufficient sacrifice. Let me remind you, friends, that once a year, the high priest could go into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. He had to be consecrated. He had to be sanctified. He had to go through ritual cleansing. And he went in there and they tied a rope on his ankle in case when he got into the presence of God, he dropped over dead. They put little bells on the tassels of his robe. So as long as they could hear him in there tinkling away, doing his sacrifice and his service, they knew he was alive. But when the bell stopped ringing, they just drag him back out of there, but you couldn't go in, not in the presence of God. That's not safe. You'll die too much. But the good news is that when Jesus Christ breathed his last on Calvary, now watch this. He breathed his last and all kinds of things started happening. The earth shook, rocks cracked open, graves, people walked out of graves. They were resuscitated and walked back into the world. Amazing. And watch this, the veil in the temple, the permanent structure made of stones and wood in Jerusalem, the veil, this heavy curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies, the most holy place, that veil that separated you and me from intimacy and direct connection with God, that veil that kept us apart from free access to God for all of those centuries and all of those generations of people who wanted to honor God but could never really get close to God because of the separation caused by sin. In the moment Jesus died, the veil of that thick curtain tore from the top to the bottom. God himself rent this thing in two. And the symbolism there is obvious that we now have free access into intimate fellowship and community with God because of the sacrifice once and for all made sufficient in Jesus Christ. This is a wonderful thing. So these sacrifices were a picture of what was to come in Christ. And that leads us to the last point, which is the presence of God with us. This was a priority of Moses. He really valued the presence of God. Now Moses goes up on Sinai and he's receiving the law and he's up there for 40 days. In the meantime, the Israelites get impatient down on, down on, the, on the desert floor. And so Moses hears the Israelites and he wonders what's going on. And God says to him, you need to get down there. The Israelites have already broken the first two commandments. <laughs> and, and, and they're engaged in revelry. And they've asked Aaron, fashion us a God. And Aaron says, bring, bring your jewels. And they, they melt down this gold and they fashion it into, a, into the shape of a calf. You know, the original holy cow. So they're worshiping this cow. These are the same folks who saw the Red Sea parted just weeks before. 
They walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. It swallowed up the entire Egyptian army behind them. These guys, these guys saw the, the 10 plagues just weeks before, months before. It raises the question, how fast, how soon, how long does it take for people to forget the miracles of God? How about you? Have you ever had a miracle? Some of you have had miracles recently. I know your story. God's hand of intervention for you or a loved one. How long does it take us to forget those? Moses comes down and he's ticked. He says to Aaron, what in the world? What is going on? And Aaron said, I don't know. The people said they needed a God and so they brought me all these precious metals. I melted them down and poof, out popped this cow. We don't know if the Israelites were just confused or distracted or still under the influence of the pathology that occurred in 400 years of slavery in Egypt, or they were just stupid. How stupid do you have to be? Out pops this cow. It's like, I don't know, the dog ate my homework. Not only is Moses ticked off, God is ticked off. God said, that's it. Moses, listen, I'll start a new nation with you as the founder, and I'll destroy all of them, these knuckleheads. And Moses says, no, 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 you can't do that. I mean, this is a risky kind of praying. God said, no, that's it, I've had it. I've had it with these people. I mean, what else do I have to do to demonstrate to them that I'm real and I'm on their side? I want the best for them. And now they're worshiping some, some cow? Really? No, I've had it. That's it. Moses said, no, no. Moses then goes to the next level. He says, listen, may, let me be accursed if you'll preserve the people. Man. And God relents. God says, okay, I'll forgive them. It's an amazing thing. Look on the screen at Exodus 33. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you. I will give you rest. Then Moses said, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Moses knew that they had to have the blessing, the protection, the guidance, the power of God with them. They needed God's presence. And Moses knew without the presence of God, the people of God cannot subsist. They cannot make it. They, they, won't, they won't prevail. And so too, friends, we are in a place like that today. Could I just challenge you to realize that without God's presence in your life, you're not going to make it. No matter how hard you try, no matter how sincere you may feel about it, we need God's presence. We need his presence and power. Yes, we do. Jesus was speaking one day with some Pharisees, some legalists. You know, they're just really careful about all 600 plus of these laws. Jesus said, you guys don't get it, do you? This is not about rules. 
This is not about keeping the regulations. It's never about that. This is about intimacy with God and a relationship with him. And these laws are simply the loving guidance and direction that God gives us so that we can stay on course with him until it's all fulfilled in me. Pastor performed a wedding rehearsal for a young couple, sincere Christian couple. The rehearsal was finished and they were at the restaurant with the wedding party there and a member of the bride's family who was in the wedding party, she had an emotional breakdown. She was too broken to appreciate all of the attention that her family member, the bride, was receiving on her wedding weekend. And after, after the rehearsal dinner at the restaurant, this bridesmaid sat in her car and waited for the bride to come out and, as I say, broken down emotionally. She ran her car intentionally and hit the bride and knocked her off her feet, and she went sliding across the pavement. She survived, but she was all scraped up, skin pulled off of one side of her body. She spent the night in the hospital. The pastor was called, and he went there and cared for the people, and then asked the question, what about the wedding? And this bride and her groom looked at each other and they said, we both love God and we love each other and we need him and each other more than we ever have. We want to go through with it. The doctor was in the room. What do you think, doc? He said, well, she's, you know, we've got her medicated pretty heavily. She said, these could be grounds for an annulment. She may not remember what happened <laughs> tomorrow. But they decided to do it. And so they went, got to the church and here's the bride and she comes down the aisle for the processional and she almost almost got to the front and she was so in pain and bandages all on one side of her body. And the groom went out and literally physically grabbed her and picked her up and carried her up the altar steps to the, to the chancel. Set her back down on her feet, stood there holding her hands they got about halfway through the ceremony and she began to wane in her strength. And so he literally took her in his arms and just held her there and held her up, finished the ceremony. He was asked later, why did you do that? He said, because she's my bride. She's my treasured possession. I'll do anything to help her in any way. And my friends today, we should remember and never forget that Almighty God looks at us, his people, as his treasured possession, standing ready to help us with his presence and his power. God, I encourage you today to reach out to him. If you don't know him, to know him, receive his kind, loving invitation to know him personally, to be your savior and Lord. And if you do know him, to reestablish that intimacy with him, would you do it? Let's pray.
Lord, today we thank you that your desire for us is to know you and to have your power and, and peace. I may be talking to someone today who's never taken the step of making sure your sins are atoned for, never applied the blood of Jesus to your life. And if you've not done that for yourself, then that's the step you need to take. And as you invite Christ to forgive you of your sins through his blood, you'll not only be forgiven, but his presence will take up residence within you. That's the decision many of you today are faced with. Will you value the presence of God in your life? Will you say to him, dear God, I I don't want to go anywhere without you. I can't face this cancer without you. Be with me. Dear God, I, I can't face the loss of my spouse without you right by my side. Dear God, I can't overcome this addiction without your power and presence in my life. Oh God, go with me to work tomorrow. I need your favor. Or very simply, Lord, I'm lost. I don't know where to go. Show me my next step. Here's the prayer that Moses prayed when God threatened to remove his presence. He said, dear God, show me your glory. Send down your presence. I want to see your face. What a great prayer. What a great prayer. Whatever level of need you may have today, would you just pray that prayer out loud after me? Would you say it after me? You ready? Dear God, show me your glory. Send down your presence. I want to see your face. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us?